Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 4. Uh, Jenna and I are leaving this evening for a couple of weeks of vacation. We will certainly miss being here for those weeks, though we hope to be back two Sundays from now in time for worship. Uh, in those uh, couple of weeks, if there's needs that you have, as always, reach out to Pastor Ben and to the deacons as well. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Uh, if you've been with us in this series of sermons in Colossians, uh, you know there's a section we've not considered yet, Colossians 4, uh, 2 through 6. Uh, so that is actually going to be preached next week, the Sunday that I'm away. The reason for that was a snag in the preaching schedule. Uh, Rex had a sermon ready to preach uh, on Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and then uh, R.T. Blackburn was born. And so uh, I didn't want to steal Rex's sermon. He will preach that sermon uh, on May 1st. Um, but maybe R.T. Blackburn could write a commentary on Colossians to make up for it. He's got the name for it. So I'm preaching this morning, a little bit out of order, the final verses of Colossians chapter 4. And then next week, God willing, that the Lord sustains our lives, Rex will preach Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Please follow along as I read Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, becomes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray once more. Lord, please fulfill the prayer of our Pastor Ben that we would now receive the Word of God, nothing more and nothing less. Uh, we do believe that when the work of preaching is rightly executed, it becomes itself uh, the Word of God and truth to us. So please, Lord, come and awaken our hearts and minds to the wonders of Your Word, and please apply by Your Spirit these truths to our hearts that we might live rightly before You that we might love and serve and honor and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
If you study the life and work of any great individual who achieved much in this life, you become aware pretty quickly that behind every great figure there is almost always a team of supporters and helpers who made that individual's contributions and achievements possible. So you might think of someone like Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, the great emancipator. We all know him in that way. But if you read a biography of Abraham Lincoln, learn more about his story, you become aware of the interconnected team of people who helped Abraham Lincoln and served him in his work and in his capacity as the President of the United States at a pivotal time in American history. So there was uh, William Seward, the Secretary of State, dear friend of Abraham Lincoln, who influenced him in a major way on some major decisions that he made. There was John Milton Hay, uh, his uh, generally unlauded and unappreciated uh, secretary and personal assistant who was crucial to all the work of President Lincoln. Uh, And if you read about Lincoln's life during the Civil War in particular, you will know how crucial President U.S. Grant was to the success of the direction that President Lincoln was seeking to lead the country. You may think of a Christian figure like Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of London. Of course, we, we know him. His name is famous to us. He's known often as the Prince of Preachers. But if you study his life, you become aware of an interconnected band of friends who were crucial Uh, to the success and the achievements that the Lord granted to Charles Spurgeon, Uh, perhaps beginning with his wife, Susanna Spurgeon, who was in every way supportive of him and uh, helped him to be all that he was by God's grace, Uh, or his brother, James Archer Spurgeon, who was his associate pastor and crucial to all the operations of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, or his many useful and fruitful uh, deacons, Vernon Charlesworth, who ran his orphanage, George Rogers, who ran the pastor's college, his own personal secretary, Joseph Harold. Again, an interconnected fellowship of friends who made him what he was. Oh, you might think of Frodo Baggins, another great figure from history. Uh, Frodo Baggins with his friends, uh, Mary and Pippin, of course, Samwise Gamgee. Where would Frodo be without his friend Sam, as the story goes? Well, here at the end of Colossians 4, we're given an expanded view. One of the most significant sections in the Scriptures that tell about Paul's co-laborers and his friends and his partners. The only one to really compare with the end of Colossians 4 is Romans uh, chapter 16, where they were given quite a lot of information about those who are with Paul and who he's writing to and some of his co-laborers. We get as much information as we have there and more than any other place in the New Testament concerning uh, Paul's uh, fellow workers and his ministry partners who contributed greatly to the success of his ministry. Uh, Paul's ministry we see here was a connectional ministry. Uh, Paul didn't minister in a detached way, detached from any local churches or ministry partners. His was a connectional ministry. He wanted to minister for the gospel together with brothers and sisters whom he dearly loved and who greatly encouraged him in his work. And the Colossian church, for their part, benefited from these relationships also. And Paul will acknowledge that benefit that they received from these other servants of Christ who assisted Paul in his labors. What I'd like to do this morning is expound Colossians 4, 7-18 under four main headings just so we can observe what's there in the passage itself, and then I'd like us to consider a few lessons that I think we can draw for the life and good of our church from what we observe here in this passage. So four headings, a very simple outline. We'll consider first of all commendations, second of all greetings, a third instructions, number four benediction. Commendations Paul gives, greetings that he shares, instructions that he gives, and then 
the benediction he provides. Consider with me firstly, the first two points we'll take most of our time on. Number one, consider these commendations. There's two in particular that Paul gives. Uh, Look with me again at verses 7 through 9. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Uh, two commentations given, commendations given in these verses. The first is to Tychicus. Tychicus. Tychicus was likely the one who delivered this letter to the Colossians. If so, that he was probably the one who delivered the epistle to the Ephesians as well. You'll remember from previous sermons, Colossians and Ephesians were companion letters. Tremendous overlap in the content of those two books uh, shared uh, between Colossians and Ephesians, perhaps written within a day of each other. We don't know. Uh, But Tychicus was evidently a faithful fellow laborer entrusted with a large stewardship from the Apostle Paul. Uh, He's to deliver these crucial letters, and he's to give the report to the churches about all of Paul's activities. Paul entrusted Tychicus. This is a man well known to the Apostle Paul. And Paul further describes him as a beloved brother, as a faithful minister, as a fellow servant in the Lord. Paul likely had discerned these traits in Tychicus over a matter of months, maybe even years that they had served alongside one another. And he had become very precious to Paul, had become beloved to Paul, and he had proved himself over these months or even years to be faithful in service to Paul and ultimately then to Christ. So Paul sends him, we read in verse 8, to tell the brothers and sisters in Colossae how Paul is doing. Uh, Presumably the congregation themselves in Colossae was longing uh, for some word or report concerning Paul's activities. He had probably never met the Colossian Christians, and yet they were familiar with his ministry. Surely they were praying for Paul, and they were eager to hear, how's our brother doing? Tell us about his ministry. How can we continue to support and pray for uh, our brother Paul? But Tychicus wasn't just to give the report on how Paul was faring. Uh, He was actually, apparently we're told, uh, to minister to the congregation and to encourage their hearts. We don't know exactly what this would have looked like. Uh, Perhaps he was sent by Paul and stayed there for a number of weeks and maybe carried on a preaching series. Maybe he was to be there over the summer and fill the pulpit for those months. Uh, Perhaps he went from house to house, meeting with different members to encourage them and counsel them. Uh, Perhaps he attended their elders' meetings and sought to encourage and strengthen the church's leadership. We don't exactly know, but we know he was there to minister to the congregation and to encourage their hearts. Uh, That's Tychicus. And then the second commendation is given to uh, Onesimus, or if you'd like, Onesimus, that's uh, what I like to call it. Verse 9, and with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. I wonder if Onesimus is known to you from any other book in the New Testament. Uh, Onesimus is apparently with Tychicus as his companion. He is described as a faithful and beloved brother. And Paul wants the Colossians, listen, he wants them to know he is one of you. He felt the need to insert that. This beloved brother, this faithful minister, he is one of you. It's likely that this is the same Onesimus described in Philemon, one chapter book also written from Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Onesimus, we learned in Philemon, was a runaway slave. He actually was a slave to Philemon. Both are believers. Both are Christians. And Onesimus ran away, apparently, from his master Philemon. 
Uh, here in Colossians 4, as Paul mentions Onesimus, he provides no commentary on Onesimus' situation. But that very well may be because his situation was well known to the brothers and sisters in Colossae. Uh, so in Philemon 1.10, there where we learn more about Onesimus, uh, we're told that Paul had become a father to Onesimus. Apparently, Onesimus comes to Paul, and over some months, years perhaps, Paul becomes a father in the faith to Onesimus. And Paul, we learn of Philemon, assesses that Onesimus is very useful to his work. He's a gifted servant of Christ, useful to the ministry and the work of the apostle Paul. Paul refers to Onesimus with this beautiful description. He says in Philemon uh, verse 13 that in sending him away, he sends him back to Philemon. He says, in sending him away, I am sending my very heart to you. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, Paul always spoke with that level of affection for those who were dear to him. We should speak that way about one another in affectionate terms about our love and care and concern for one another. Paul asked Philemon to receive Onesimus, his runaway servant, as you would receive me, he says. So Onesimus was unusually precious to Paul. So in light of this backstory, I can't help but read a little bit into Paul's statement in verse 9 of Colossians 4. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Perhaps, this is speculation, I admit, the Colossians needed to be encouraged to receive Onesimus and not to be prejudiced against him because of his former status as a slave. Uh, Paul is perhaps calling them to put into practice his word to them in Colossians 3.11 that in the new humanity, in the church, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And so he says, brothers, sisters, in Colossae, receive Onesimus. Uh, he is one of you. He is one of the brothers. Right, those are the commendations to Tychicus and to Onesimus. Now, we look at a number of greetings that Paul shares. Second major heading, consider the greetings, uh, four that I have for you. First of all, we'll take three together, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. These three are lumped together in kind of one group in verses 10 and 11. So, look at verse 10 with me. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. These three brothers are said to be men of the circumcision, that is to say, they came out of Judaism. Uh, these were men of a Jewish background, presumably all of Paul's other fellow workers, at least at this time that he references, were all converted Gentiles. They were not Jews. They were of the uncircumcision, if we're using Paul's categories. You'll remember that this issue of circumcision and uncircumcision has come up in Colossae, and at times Paul has acknowledged that there are no longer resources in Judaism concerning those legal prescriptions for the Christian today, uh, that keeping those Mosaic civil and ceremonial laws was no longer required of the Christian. They were not productive toward Christian godliness. Uh, but lest he be uh, considered a kind of anti-Semite or prejudiced toward Judaism, he says, I have members of the circumcision with me, and they have been useful to me, and they extend their greeting to you. Paul describes these brothers as his fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and he says, they have been a comfort to me. Right now, the, the second uh, greeting that is extended comes from Epaphras. Epaphras, verses 12 and 13. Look with me at verse 12. Epaphras, 
Who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in His prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear Him witness that He has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Epaphras, it's not the first time he's come up in the book of Colossians, he came up in chapter 1. He likely planted the church in Colossae. Paul didn't plant the Colossian church. Epaphras likely planted the Colossian church. And I'll remind you of what we read of Epaphras in chapter 1. There, Paul reminds the Colossians of their standing in the gospel, which they learned, verse 7, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul says, Epaphras, he's been a faithful minister. He's been a faithful shepherd. He's been a faithful servant of Christ in your case and for your good. And I love the description we're given in chapter 4, verse 12 of Epaphras' ministry. We're told in verse 12, he is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. And then Paul describes him as always struggling on your behalf in prayer. Paul was faithful to pray for the sheep at Colossae, always wrestling, always struggling that Christ might be formed in them that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras was a true pastor among them. He understood the essence of pastoral work. It is the ministry of the Word in prayer. He labored in prayer on their behalf. He, he took the directory and he prayed through that directory for the souls of men and women in the church. He visited with men and women. He prayed with them in their homes and, and, and in the gatherings of the local congregation, always struggling and toiling on behalf of the flock in prayer. And what's more, he ministered to them in such a way that they might grow, that they might mature and stand fully assured in the faith. You know, that statement from Paul in Galatians 4 verse 19, talking to the Galatians, he says, I'm in the anguish of childbirth that Christ might be formed in you. Epaphras was a man who faithfully labored for the good of the Colossian Christians. He was a faithful pastor. May the Lord give us pastors like Epaphras. He knew the hard work and the struggle and the toil, and such work is and ought to be struggle and toil. I was reminded this week of a, a story uh, in connection to the life and ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great preacher in the 19th, or 20th century in uh, London, heart of the Westminster area, was there at Westminster Chapel for uh, three decades. And um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching. He used to travel a lot and preach during the week in other places. And he had preached at some event, some conference, and um, he, he preaches in characteristic Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, the doctor kind of fashion. He was very grave and serious man, and he preached with unction and with the Lord's anointing. And uh, he finished preaching, and he gets down, and afterwards there was some event he's supposed to be at. And there's a young guy who's just, you know, he's got a little bit of the fanboy syndrome, you know, he's the, the celebrity preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he's so, wow, here's, here's the doctor in all his glory. And um, so he goes up to the doctor, and he's chummy and chatty, and he kind of nudges the doctor, and he says, he says, oh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, what, what was it like? How do you feel after, after preaching uh, a message like this? And in very terse and characteristic fashion, Lloyd-Jones says, tired. And uh, apparently the young man was dissatisfied with that answer. He had hoped that he'd get more out of his uh, preaching hero, so he kind of, in a somewhat obnoxious way, oh, well, tell me more, you know, uh, what, 
what, what were you feeling as you were preaching? When you got to your third point, what was going on in your head? And uh, Lloyd-Jones uh, looks at the young man dead in the eye, and he points to where he was preaching, and he says, young man, uh, that is the closest any man will ever get to feeling what it's like to be in childbirth. What was he saying? Uh, he was actually working with Paul's statement, I am laboring, struggling, toiling in childbirth that Christ might be formed in you. This was a sacred labor. This was a sacred work, and it was a work that apparently Epaphras was familiar with. He has worked hard for the brothers and sisters in Colossae. Verse 13, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Well, now the third set of greetings here, Luke and Demas, verse 14. Look with me at verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So this is the same Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. He was one of Paul's closest companions, just an extraordinary servant of Christ. He was a physician himself, a doctor. Uh, he was an historian, an early chronicler of the work of the apostles. He was a very special man, a special co-laborer to the apostle Paul. Some New Testament scholars even speculate that Luke was, in fact, Paul's personal physician and tasked in a special way to care for Paul. If you're familiar with the many times Paul was beaten and scourged and all the different maladies that his physical body endured, you can understand why he might need a doctor on call 24-7 to care for him and keep him in the ministry. Uh, So Luke sends greetings to you, uh, but this next name, uh, Demas, strikes a sad note for us. Uh, Demas was apparently laboring with Paul in some form or fashion during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. However, at the time of his second imprisonment, uh, things had changed, and Demas had shown his true colors, and he actually uh, left. He defected. He apostatized. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11, written a few years later, so in Paul's second imprisonment, a few years after Colossians was written, we read this. Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Colossians 4, 14, our passage, reveals to us that there was a time when Luke and Demas worked with Paul together. Uh, Luke and Demas were partners, and they labored to serve and to minister to the apostle Paul and to hold his arms up But that didn't continue to be the case. Demas apostatized and left the faith. And I just want to pause here briefly uh, and give, number one, a needed reminder, number two, a sober warning, and number three, an important encouragement. Number one, a needed reminder. We should all recognize that not all who start well finish well, and not all who appear to be disciples are truly disciples. Demas apparently was so promising Uh, as a young man and a co-laborer of the Apostle Paul, that even Paul himself uh, was fooled. Even Paul assessed him to be a true Christian and a man who's worthy of being a co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. You'll remember uh, that's not the same judgment he advanced to John Mark, who he thought uh, was not going to be useful to his work. And later, he concludes that John Mark would be useful. But even Paul, uh, in assessing Demas, could not tell that he was not truly 
one of the brothers. And friends, we should just be reminded this happens in the Christian life. The Lord has warned us about this. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, uh, on the day of judgment will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are some who where the seed is planted, it springs up and it looks like life, but the cares of this world and concerns of this world choke it out. I just want to encourage you, especially in an age where we often hear about uh, famous Christian leaders who fall, maybe people we listen to on the radio one day, or we podcasted their sermons, or we read their books, and we discover that they were living a double life, or that they've deconstructed and left the faith. We shouldn't be surprised by that. The Bible anticipates that that's going to happen, that some along the way are going to be lost. Uh, there will be some who will prove to never have been truly saved, to never uh, have truly been one of us. Demas was such a one. That's a needed reminder. But secondly, a sober warning. My friend, you cannot be a Christian and maintain a love affair with this present world. Uh, Demas, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's left me, Demas, in love with this present world, has gone to Thessalonica. He's gone to Sin City. He's pursuing sinful indulgence and pleasure. He didn't make a break with the world. He didn't understand that the spirit of this world is enmity against God. He didn't recognize what John said, that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that these things war against the Christian heart and the Christian conscience. That the way of this world is antithetical to the way of Christ. But Demas nursed in his own heart a love for the world. The world's pleasures, the world's lies, the world's ways. And so I just want to encourage you here, if you sense in your own heart a gravitation toward the things of this world, hear this sober warning. Uh, You cannot serve God and mammon. Uh, You cannot be a lover of God and a lover of this present evil age. Be warned by the example of Demas, who in love with this present world forsook Paul and forsook the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be a follower of Christ and a lover of this world. But finally, an important encouragement. There is encouragement here for us. You know, it's, it's interesting. I have a book on my shelf. Uh, it's called A Dangerous Calling. I think it's by Paul Tripp. It's about pastoral ministry. And on the back of it, there are four endorsements. I think I have this right. Uh, Mark Driscoll is one of the endorsements. James McDonald. And Tully and Chivijan. And I can't remember who the fourth was. Uh, All of those men, I'm not saying all of them are not Christians, uh, but they all have been involved in terrible scandals and brought all kinds of ruin to their churches. And interestingly enough, in newer editions of that book, they've taken those names off the back and put on new endorsements. I kind of thought they should leave them on there to sort of indicate how dangerous the calling really is. That could be a lesson uh, to those entering the ministry or those who pray for ministers. Uh, There is an encouragement here, though, for us. Paul knew, friends, what it was like to be abandoned by close friends and companions, and yet he was enabled to persevere. He knew what it was like to be lonely. He understood what it's like to be abandoned by a close friend or a close partner in ministry or or someone perhaps who you had, you know, been discipled by or been in prayer gatherings with, someone who seemed so solid. He knew what it was like. He experienced abandonment and loneliness, and yet, wonderfully, the Lord enabled him to persevere. May this encourage us as we read his letters. My friend, if you've experienced abandonment, or you've had a close Christian friend or a pastor in your life who has left the faith or been enmeshed in scandal and things like that, Paul can sympathize with you. 
He can sympathize with those of us who experience desertion and loneliness and abandonment by someone who once looked so promising. And friends, the same Paul who was abandoned and betrayed was the same Paul who wrote Romans 8 about God's good purposes for us in Christ and His unstoppable love. He's the same Paul who wrote Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare. He was familiar with the conflict and the need to be strong and to stand in the faith. He's the same Paul who went about in Acts 14, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This was a trial to Paul, to see Demas leave him. But these are the greetings that are recorded for us and inspired in sacred Scripture that Luke and Demas greet the Apostle Paul. And then the last one, Paul, number four, extends his greeting in verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Paul asked the Colossians to take his greeting beyond their own church. Uh, So next time you are at the midsummer picnic with that other congregation at Laodicea, uh, uh, read this to them. Tell them how much I love them. Tell them that I greet them. Oh, and if you see Nympha, she's been useful in organizing a church in her home and hosting the brothers and sisters there in her house. Encourage our sister Nympha. All right, commendations. Greetings, now thirdly, and more briefly, instructions. Paul then gives instructions in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Let's see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Two instructions here. The first is instructions regarding Paul's letters. First, Paul instructs that his letter to the Colossians be read among the Laodiceans, which I think is an indication that Paul understands these principles that he's given us in Colossians. They are perennially relevant to all of Christ's churches. Uh, This letter that is profitable to you all in Colossae, it's going to be profitable to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea. And how wonderful, 2,000 years on, has it not been a profit to the saints in Winston-Salem? Have this letter read also in Laodicea. Now, we don't have the Laodicean letter, which apparently was to be brought over to Colossae. For whatever reason, the Spirit didn't preserve that letter for us, but it was also to be read in the Colossian church. Paul wanted his instructions to these individual churches to go beyond these individual churches. Then in verse 17, we have a second instruction that Paul gives them. It's instructions to a presumably young minister. Paul has a special word to give to Archippus, a young minister who is uh, perhaps ministering in the uh, Colossian area. He instructs the Colossians, verse 17, to tell Archippus to fulfill the ministry that he had received from the Lord. So perhaps Archippus is laboring, ministering in the Colossian region. Um, Perhaps he was known to the Colossian church somehow. Perhaps he was a pastor of a sister congregation. Either way, he was known to Paul, and Paul wanted to bring him this exhortation. So he's writing this letter. He takes thought, how could I encourage Archippus? Uh, we don't know much about Archippus. Perhaps he was timid. Though a minister, perhaps he was shy, timid, somewhat fearful, needed to be encouraged. Perhaps he was discouraged himself. Maybe he had a hard season in ministry. It's just been a difficult couple of years for Archippus. Perhaps he was naturally withdrawn and needed to be encouraged to stir up his gifts and to serve the body of Christ. Perhaps he was growing weary. And Paul wanted to urge him to fulfill his ministry. Perhaps, on the other hand, uh, Archippus was fully engaged in the work and just needed extra encouragement from Paul 
to stay at it. Uh, perhaps Archimedes was one of Paul's co-laborers. And perhaps Paul, someone gave him a very specific task, a duty that he was to discharge and fulfill. And Paul wants him to be reminded, don't forget to do what I told you to do. Fulfill the ministry that I gave you. We don't know exactly what's behind Paul's words, but what we have here, notice this, is an older veteran Christian minister undertaking to exhort and encourage a younger minister. An older seasoned Christian encouraging a younger Christian. And how such an exhortation and encouragement would likely have helped Archippus and stabilized him in whatever ministry the Lord had called him to. Maybe Archippus was there when the letter was read aloud. Oh, there's a P.S. for you, Archippus. Paul says to you, brother, fulfill the ministry that God has given you. Do the work of the Lord, Archippus, that God has called you to. What a wonderful model this is of discipling. Uh, The model of mentorship, of an older brother undertaking to encourage a younger brother. Uh, If I could just say a word here to uh, the older men of this church, and this would apply to the older sisters as well. Um, Sadly, a lot of older Christians, as they grow old, let me say this, I, I, I give this, I recognize as a younger man who has not grown old myself. I intend to give it particularly as a younger man, okay? So, this is an admonition to older folks, particularly from a younger man. Um, Sadly, a lot of times when folks get older, they can become more crabby and they can become more pessimistic, Um, not just about like the young people these days, but like even the kingdom of God. Things can seem dark, they can seem dour, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket and they watch the news and they're so discouraged about the culture, um, for the benefit of the younger brothers and sisters here, don't bring any of that to us. We need encouragement. We need you to put wind in our sails. We need you to give us hope for the fight that's before us. And um, I had the joy as a a young man coming up in college and in my 20s of being in the orbit of many older men. Some of my best friends are in their 60s and 70s. And I was with a fraternity of different younger guys who were just looking for mentorship. We always gravitated to those older men who believed in us, who loved us, who encouraged us. I'm not talking about men who didn't criticize us and critique us. They did that too. We wanted that. But even then, they had this sense, it's your time, men. We want to pass the baton to you. We want to put wind in your sails for your voyage that you might run faithfully and serve faithfully. They were eager to help us in our own Christian walk and to encourage us to fulfill whatever ministry God has given to us. And so I just encourage you, older brothers here, be like Paul. Be optimistic about younger people. Older sister here, be, be, be optimistic about the younger women that you serve and that you disciple. You might look at the younger women and think, well, you know, in, in my day, uh, we never would have dealt with that attitude, and you know, we used to keep our kids in line. And we would. I get it. You're probably right. Uh, but the way to be effective in serving younger generations is to give them encouragement, to give them support. I'm not saying don't critique them or criticize them or talk about their, their failings, but do that in a context of love and encouragement and confidence and optimism. You can do this, sister. You can do this, brother, by the grace that God supplies. The Lord has said He will build His church. You need not be afraid. Step forward, brother. Step forward, sister. Fulfill the work that God has called you to do. 
There's a little blue book. We gave it out to our members probably a couple of years ago now. A little blue book. It's in the bookstall. We've got lots of extra copies. You could have it for free if you come by my study. It's by Mark Dever. It's called Discipling. Mark Dever is, I think, in the 60s, pastors in Washington, D.C. It's a great little line toward the back of that book about how to, he's talking about how to encourage younger pastors, but it applies, I think, in all discipling relationships. He, he criticizes younger people, and he says, you know, younger people seem to think that the, the best way to encourage growth and change in other people is to criticize them. So let me find out what your weaknesses are and tell you all the things you're doing bad and that, you know, how you need to straighten up and, and that sort of thing. And Mark, just as a veteran pastor, a veteran saint, says, you know, I've discerned over the course of my Christian life, 90% of what you want to accomplish in the people you're discipling is accomplished through encouragement. You will have to at times speak to their weaknesses. You may sometimes have to rebuke them. Paul certainly knew how to do that. But Paul was an encourager. Find Archippus. I have a word for him. Tell this dear brother, fulfill the ministry that Christ has given to you. All right, that's it for instructions. Now, fourthly and finally, and most briefly, benediction. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Perhaps Paul takes the pen at this point and leaves his distinctive signature. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And he tells them, brothers, sisters, don't forget about my chains. Uh, remember that I am in prison for the sake of the gospel. I'm in prison for your sake. That's to be a prompt to them perhaps to pray, an encouragement that the cause of Christ is worth it. Paul is paying the ultimate cost. Don't forget my chains. Be instructed by that. Be encouraged by that. And be stimulated to pray for me. Perhaps that's what's in his mind. And finally, he invites the grace of God upon them. Grace be with you. You wonder what informed these benedictions or these uh, beatitudes that these men uh, spoke over these congregations. I wonder how you sign off your emails. Uh, maybe that would have been how he was thinking here. Grace be with you. It's the last thing he's going to say. I think Paul goes to grace because he recognizes grace is ultimately what they really need. May the grace of God be with you. Grace to forgive and wash and restore. Grace to work as a power within you to do all the will of God. Okay, I'd like us to transition now from exposition. You may say, look, we don't know who these people are. This is like an insider's thing. I'm not really in on all of it. What, what relevance could this have for our church? What I've tried to do is extract what I think are a few lessons we can draw for the benefit of our congregation. There are probably many. But here are four lessons I'd like to give us in closing. Consider these lessons for us or points of application. Number one. The best of Christian leaders and the best of churches need partners and co-laborers in the work of Christ's kingdom. The best of Christian leaders and the best of churches need partners and co-laborers, friends and allies, helpers in the work of Christ's kingdom. Think about what this passage reveals to us. The Apostle Paul, that great man of God, seen the risen Christ, uh, probably the one who ascended to the third heaven in 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul needed help. He needed co-laborers. He needed churches to pray for him. 
He needed Christians to send funds for his support. He needed to hear reports on the work of various churches. He himself felt the need to give reports of his labors. He labored to develop a tightly knit network of fellow workers and partnering churches for the progress of his ministry. He did this also for his own accountability and for his encouragement and support. He did this, all of this, because he knew he needed the help of other Christians. I, I can't serve them. I, I need co-laborers. I need friends in ministry. I need supporting churches. I need to be connected with and in fellowship with and attached to other servants of Christ in other places. Paul needed help in his kingdom work. He sought out connectionalism and fellowship between churches and ministry workers and friends, if Paul needed help in the work of the gospel, don't we need help also in our own local church in the work of the gospel? Pastors and missionaries will need help and encouragement. They will need support. They will need fellow laborers. Churches will need the gifts of others outside of their church to support them. They will need the prayers of saints in other churches. They will at times need to receive uh, the ministry of God's faithful servants from outside their own local church. Others who might come and minister the gospel to them or the use of faithful biblical counselors or other servants of Christ outside their own congregation who can benefit the life of the body among them. Pastors and missionaries, ordinary Christian people, Local churches, they all need help and support from other Christians. And I'm thinking here like, like outside of their own churches. Everything we need is not ultimately contained in this one congregation. We need allies and friends in the gospel. We need to be connected to other churches. No Christian is an island, and friends, no church is an island. The Colossian church needed support, not just Paul. The Colossian church needed these other fellow servants and co-laborers. The Colossian church needed love, encouragement, and support, not only from those within, but from those without. They were connected to the wider family of God. The church at Colossae knew the church in Laodicea and vice versa, and they prayed for one another and served one another. They knew the names of these faithful servants, and they prayed for them and encouraged them, perhaps financially supported them, and they shared ministry partners and received ministry between them. They were connectional churches. I was so encouraged this past week. I uh, got to go to the Together for the Gospel conference in Louisville with Brad Kinnison and uh, Lou and Linda Guerra, members of our church, were there also. And it's you know, three days of sermons and messages preached, and we saw uh, our brother Zach DePrima there, uh, served here, trying to remember the church, and uh, he's doing quite well. He's coming here later in the summer to preach for us, and uh, it was great to be with him. Uh, and he made the comment, we've gone to many of these conferences over the years, and he said, you know, I I used to come to this conference for the messages, and then it was more about like the music and singing and all the free books that they give you. Uh, but now, it's about the friendships, it's about the relationships. Ten to 12,000 uh, people that descended on Louisville, the convention center there, to take in the theology and kind of preaching that we love here. And it was one of every corner we turned, there was some other beloved brother, beloved sister who we could hug and embrace and talk to and receive updates. And friends, I, I, I feel uh, very privileged in this sense because I'm often with other pastors and churches, but I just want you to know this. Uh, the story of this church and the ministry of this church has carried far and wide. And at so many points throughout this conference, here's this brother in Louisville or Washington, D.C. or in Atlanta, Georgia, or as far as L.A. and California. We've heard about your church. How's the ministry going? How can we pray for you? What's the last couple of years been like for you and your church? So many who care for this congregation. 
pray for this congregation and support this congregation. Some of that ministry we all see, and some of it sometimes private, funneled between the leaders of the church or different members of the church, but it was a reminder it's good to be connected to the kingdom of God in other places. We need friends. We need allies in the work of the ministry. We need churches with whom we can partner and be connected with. We must recognize we as a church need help and support. We need allies in the work of the gospel. We need help, wisdom, and input from those outside of this church. Wasn't it such a good thing? Members of the church will know this. Uh, when we became a Cornerstone Baptist Church in Thomasville, a church like-minded with us, a sister congregation, and uh, the, the joy of sharing fellowship with them, being able to pray for them, and then to help them in finding a new pastor, look, that's a win for us, not just them. Uh, it's an achievement for the kingdom of God, and it's good to be connected to such churches. It's worth saying something here, maybe this has come to some of your minds, a quick word about our church polity. So we believe the Scriptures to teach that local churches ought to be self-governing churches. Uh, that is to say, we believe what might be called local church autonomy. I don't love that phrase, but that's the phrase that's often used. All that we mean by that phrase, self-governing church or local church autonomy, is that we believe that all the mechanisms for formal church government are internal to each congregation. Uh, that means that people outside of us don't have authority over us. The Lord has given mechanisms to each church, internal to that church, to carry on the ministry there, uh, primarily through elders in the church, but also through the discipline of the church that comes through the congregation and things like that. So we don't have a governing board over us or a presbytery over us or the Southern Baptist Convention over us. We would see in the New Testament a more sort of mere polity with less hierarchy, that each congregation is autonomous. Now here, though, is the failure uh, that we need to guard against as those who believe that we ought to be a self-governing church. We can become isolationist, separationist from other congregations. We could withdraw from fellowship. I was talking to a Presbyterian brother, and he was trying to uh, encourage me on all the values of having a presbytery, and um, that's a group of elders from all over the region who kind of oversee certain affairs in your church. I said, brother, that's great. It's not in the Bible, but it sounds wonderful. You know, Baptists historically did something like that. They were called associations. Uh, so churches recognize we need other churches. We're not going to withdraw from all of our brothers and sisters in our region, in our community, unless they're non-Christian churches. We need to have relations with the churches, and they formed associations. And those associations didn't have formal authority over the churches, because that would contradict what the Bible teaches, but they were there for fellowship, for counsel, for input, for prayer, for resourcing one another and sending ministers back and forth. So friends, as we teach what I think is the biblical pattern, self-governing churches, that should not put off a kind of connectionalism that we see modeled here in even Paul's letters. We should be connected to other congregations and not withdraw from the work of God in other places if, if it is truly the Lord's work. So our pastors should be connected to other pastors for help, encouragement, accountability, shared wisdom, support, and friendship. Friends, please don't stop sending us to conferences. Let me just thank you. As one of the pastors of this church, uh, in the budget every year, there's a little line item where I, I'm able to go to a conference every year. I need that for accountability, encouragement, mentorship, friendship, prayer. Uh, the pastors of this church need those kinds of relationships. Members of our church should benefit from the ministries of other preachers. So we will sometimes bring in preachers from outside of this church to fill our pulpit. That's not us abdicating our responsibility. It's us trying to promote connectionalism with the kingdom of God in other places. 
Uh, members of our church may benefit from biblical counselors outside of our church body, and we have often recommended that members engage with biblical counselors. Uh, various parachurch groups and fellowship and support from other Christians in other places. Perhaps at times we'll need funds from outside of this church to support the work here. We will certainly always need the prayers of other churches in other places. Let's expect, brothers and sisters, and look for healthy relationships with other churches for the good of the work of the gospel here and in other places outside of this church. No church is an island, and we should be a connectional church because we need the help of other saints outside of our own local church. One of the dangers of being a church like ours, of being a church with a pronounced emphasis on doctrine and various theological distinctives, is that we could think no one's good enough for our friendship. We're Reformed Baptists. Them over there, they're not Reformed Baptists. They're not really of us. We really just got to recede into ever-narrowing spheres of relationship and fellowship. Listen, I'm confident of two things. I am certain that the Apostle Paul was a Reformed Baptist. Certain of that. Don't have any questions about that. I'm also certain that Paul carried on relationships with those who were not Reformed Baptists. My goodness, we talked about the church in Corinth in the equip class. I mean, the problems that church had. Not just immorality and licentiousness. Like they were getting doctrines wrong. And yet, what does Paul say to them in the opening of that letter? He calls them the church of God in Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Friends, being together for the gospel is right. It's good. We should be connected to other churches, even if they don't embrace all of our theological distinctives. Let's be on guard against factionalism and partisan, uh, partisan spirit. Well, let's uh, consider a second lesson here, and I won't be as long-winded on this second one. Number two, a second lesson for us that we learn in Colossians 4. Very similar, connected, but distinct in its own way. Uh, Christians should be concerned not only about the progress of their own local church, but of the Lord's churches in every place. So Christians like us here at Emmanuel, we should be concerned about the progress of the gospel, not only here, but in every place where the Lord's true churches are. Think about this. When Paul left a region, he didn't think, well, out of sight, out of mind. Paul carried with him always his anxiety for all the churches. He cared about the churches he planted. He cared about how they were doing and that their ministry was sustained. And he cared also about churches he hadn't planted, like the Colossian church. He had heard about them, and he wanted to write to them and to make sure they're doing well and to invest in the work of God there. He cared earnestly for the Colossians and the Laodiceans, and what's more, he wanted them to care about one another. You remember that glorious commendation that was given to the Colossian church in chapter 1. He commends them uh, for their uh, love that they had for all the saints. He heard about their love for all the saints, not just in their church, but everywhere. They loved the saints wherever they could find them. They wanted to pray for them, support them, and encourage them. It's a virtue to be commended in a church, a church that isn't just gazing at itself, investing all of its resources in itself, but a church that is awake and alive to the work of the kingdom of God all over the world. We should care about the progress of the gospel chiefly, whether that's happening most here or in some other place. And as God blesses us, friends, we should, as a church, contribute from our resources to the cause of the gospel in other places. 
It's a good thing for us to raise up laborers for the harvest for the express purpose, not of keeping them here, but of sending them out. Uh, So we should invest tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars even in the raising up of people that aren't going to stay here, but go and benefit churches in other places because their fruit in those other places is our fruit. We're all on the same team here. There's no competition. We're not trying to build the Emmanuel brand as much as we possibly can. We should raise up laborers, send them forth, send them out, even sending out our best, sometimes to the herd of our congregation. It should be sacrificial, raising up and sending out laborers. If there are servants among us here in this church, members of this church, who can benefit other churches, then we should celebrate their efforts and be open to trying to resource them in their work. Maybe we don't feel the benefit most of all, but if other churches receive the benefit, we should be glad about that, and we should support them in their efforts to do that. We should be willing, friends, to contribute of our financial resources as God blesses us for the progress of the gospel in other places. That's why it's our aim. Uh, 20 cents on every dollar that comes into the church goes back out to other churches, missionaries, and works of benevolence. I hope you don't begrudge that commitment or that effort. We recognize the Lord has been gracious to us here, has given us funds where we're able to do that. And if it hurts a little bit, we've got to tighten up our belts in other areas. We want to do that because we know we as a church exist not only for the people sitting in this room today, but for the work of the gospel in every place as the Lord gives us opportunity. It is good for a church's leadership, for the membership of the church body to think, how can we serve other churches? How can we be of help to the work of the gospel in places other than our own local church. We should want the success of the church just a mile down the road. We should pray for the health and growth of churches in our area who are preaching the gospel and discipling people faithfully. Uh, Two days ago, Friday, I was able to leave uh, the church a little bit early. I did something I try never to do. Uh, I went to the mall and uh, I had to get some sunglasses. I've never invested really in nice sunglasses. I said, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to buy a nice pair of sunglasses. I'm going to take care of these sunglasses. And uh, so I went to the mall, and there's Lens Crafters. I, I guess that's a place to go. And so I walked into Lens Crafters. And there's a delightful young lady that helped me out, and she was telling me all these things about sunglasses I, I never knew. Different sizes and frames, and this one does this, and this one does that. This will help you with this. And, okay, are you going to be, like, going to the beach a lot? Or are you going to be in this setting or that setting? It's mainly for driving, all this kind of stuff. Uh, very informative. She helped me learn a lot of things about sunglasses. But their selection was pretty slim. And so I tried on different ones. I didn't like how any of them looked. And I said, uh, yeah, I'm just not really finding something I'm looking for here. This is all helpful, the information coming out. It just doesn't exactly fit my needs. And she said, oh, well, it was very helpful. She said, just go up the escalator. Just stop this way, go up the escalator. And uh, up there, you'll find Sunglasses Hut, Okay. Uh, if that isn't a symbol of the hyper-commercialization of American culture. Here's Sunglasses Hut. I said, uh, yeah, go there. They have a wider selection than we do. And I think they'd be more helpful to meet this need that you have. Uh, and they're a sister company, so we're happy for them to have business, so go ahead and do that. I went up the escalator, I went into Sunglasses Hut, and they were very helpful. They did have a wider selection, and I found a pair of sunglasses that I wanted. I purchased it, and um, everybody was happy. The kind lady who helped me at Lens Crafters, very happy to refer this business over to their sister company at um, Sunglasses Hut. And of course, the Sunglasses Hut lady was happy to get the commission, and I was happy to get the sunglasses. Win, win, win. 
Well, why was the woman at LensCrafter so happy for me to do business elsewhere? Well, because they share the profits, right? LensCrafters, Sunglasses Hut, we're all on the same team, you know, we're all going to the same basic place, and uh, we all benefit from the business that either place does. Well, if you'd pardon the business analogy, it works that way in the church. Uh, sister churches that grow and are seeing conversions and um, are, are able to grow in different ways and serve people in ways that maybe we can't, their fruit is our fruit. We're all part of the kingdom of Christ. We all report to the same supervisor. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor. He is the chief shepherd. And so their progress is our progress. Now, I'm not talking about non-Christian churches, churches that are gay-affirming or churches that are denying core doctrines of the Bible. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. But if they're preaching the gospel, they're preaching the Lord's Word, they're discipling people according to the Bible, their success is ours. Friends, we should rejoice in the health of other local churches other than our own. We should care about the progress of the gospel in other places. I was talking about this idea recently with a brother in this church, and uh, 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 I was acknowledging, I said at Emmanuel Church, and one of the things we didn't anticipate, but it's just the Lord's providence for us, um, we uh, planted this church, and there have been numbers of folks who came to Emmanuel out of broken church backgrounds, just difficult church backgrounds, and what a privilege to serve them and to minister to them and, um, and to develop a, a new church here by God's grace that we hope is faithful. And uh, the brother was glad for that also. And he said, he said, you know, one thing you have to be careful, though, in situations like that, you have to be aware of OPC syndrome. Being the nerd that I am, I thought, like, Orthodox Presbyterian Church syndrome? Like, what is that? It's an OPC, only perfect church syndrome. Well, at Emmanuel, you know, they really do things right at Emmanuel. Oh, the singing at Emmanuel. No, the way they organize the classes. There's just no church like it. I could never go anywhere else, and uh, we're thankful we've found the right church. People can act that way about their local churches, and they can become very tribal, look down their noses at other churches. Well, they just don't do it like us. Uh, You know, they went out from us, but they're not really of us. It's not really exactly the way we do it back at Emmanuel. We shouldn't adopt that attitude. We are for the progress of the gospel and the health of local churches wherever they may be found. But friends, you just move east of here. I bless God. There are healthy churches all over the place. If you go east, 20, 30 minutes to Greensboro, there's King's Cross Church. Uh, Clint Darst, the pastor there, pray for that church. They're growing, healthy congregation there. Uh, you go maybe 15 minutes east of there to McLeansville. You have uh, Calvary Church and Josh Eller, who is the pastor there. Wonderful congregation that's doing great work for the Lord. You go about 30 minutes east of there. You're in Mebane where there's Grace Reformed Baptist Church, and Stu Johnston, Stephen Bird, uh, Michael Lopes, church that planted this congregation. Lord's blessing that congregation. We want to pray for their well-being. Go 20 minutes east of there, and you're in Durham, First Baptist Church of Durham, where Andy Davis is the pastor of the wonderful congregation. Our sister Sarah Guy uh, came to us from First Baptist Church of Durham. Go 20 minutes east of there, and you're in Raleigh, Open Door Church in Raleigh, where Dwayne Milioni is the pastor. Wonderful congregation that the Lord has blessed in wonderful ways. Brother and sister Kraft and Donna Bell, I don't see them. They came to us from Open Door Church in Raleigh. Go 20 minutes east of there, and you're in Wilson, North Carolina, where Justin Dieter is the pastor of Redemption Church. These are all healthy congregations. And we want to be for their progress, as well as about the progress of the gospel here. That took far too long. <laughs> I had two more points. I, I need to end this sermon. My time is gone. The third point was this, we should be eager to encourage other Christians in their service to Christ. 
And I was going to encourage us from Paul's example. He was an encourager. We should, we should vocalize encouragement to one another in the faith in the way that our brother did. Number four was going to be this, and please consider this on your own. As long as we are alive, we may be useful in Christ's kingdom. So Paul is in a dank prison. He had been out doing wonderful things at different times, and his sphere gets narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. He's still thinking, how can I be useful? Well, I could write this letter. I could uh, make sure that one's read over here. I could encourage Archippus. I could send this guy to that guy. He's thinking, how can I be useful? Some of us are growing older. Our bodies don't function in the ways they used to. It seems our spheres of opportunity are narrowing. It's okay. Take a lesson from the Apostle Paul. What, how can I be useful now? I can't do all that I used to do, but how can I be useful to Christ now? Uh, some of us feel that we're in a difficult season of life. Maybe you're a young mom and you got kids crawling all over you, or you're a soccer mom or dad and you feel like all you do is drive kids, like an Uber service for your kids. Uh, you think it's just all, okay, that's fine, it's a season of life. You can still be useful to Christ. Take this lesson from Paul. Look for opportunities to be useful to Christ's kingdom. Well, I'll stop there. May the Lord make our consideration of these verses and our consideration of this great book uh, useful to all of us and edifying and instructive to us as we seek to serve the preeminent Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for faithful saints gone before us. How many hundreds and thousands, even millions of Christians do we owe a debt of gratitude to who have served us in various ways throughout the centuries? I think even now of this building that was given to us by saints, most of us don't even know their names, and how kind they were to serve our congregation. Uh, thank you, Father, for the many churches that partnered with us financially to help us plant this church, the brothers and sisters that were sent to us from various churches to serve the ministry of this church. We've just benefited so much from brothers and sisters who cared about the progress of the gospel here. Uh, Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his co-laborers. What a debt we owe uh, to Luke the physician. What a debt we owe to Epaphras who planted this church in Colossae such that Paul would eventually write this letter and we could have it preserved for us that we could be fed on it. Oh Lord, you have blessed us manifestly in the body of Christ. We pray that you would help us as a church to return blessing to others, to be a church that is together for the gospel with congregations all over our region, all over our nation, all over our world. May we assist our brothers and sisters in the vital work you've given them. May you guard us from tribalism and sectarianism. Uh, may you cause us to love every good work that you are doing in this world for the glory of Christ. May we be supporters of it, lovers of it, prayer warriors for it. Father, we pray that we would experience in this place the full blessing of the various gifts and resources of our brothers and sisters of one another. Please intercede for the health and well-being of this congregation. We pray that you would keep every individual member in the faith. We pray you would protect each one of us from the fate of Demas. We pray that we would follow hard after Christ, that we would uh, not love this present world, but put all of our affections, find them satisfied in the person of Jesus. Please, Father, help us. Keep us, we pray. And keep the ministry of each individual Christian and us corporately as a church vital and vibrant until we enter glory, until the Lord Jesus himself returns. Bless us in the contemplation of these things, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.